This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome. The ecological footprint of war and ongoing preparations for war cannot be ignored. Militarism is a top contributor to the global climate crisis and a direct cause of lasting environmental damage. And yet military activities are often exempted from key environmental regulations. Militarism can feel like the elephant in the room. And today we're going to explore why environmental organizations largely don't talk about war and how we can build better cross connections between the environmental and anti-war movements. My name is Greta Zaro and I'm the organizing director of World Beyond War, a global grassroots network advocating for the abolition of war and its replacement with what we call an alternative global security system based on peace and demilitarization. Today I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Elliott Stein, and today's two guests are Ashik Sadiq, a research analyst for the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. He is working on an analysis of the federal budget and military spending. He is particularly interested in examining how militarized U.S. domestic and foreign policy interacts with efforts to address long-term societal threats like accelerating inequality and climate change. Prior to joining NPP, Ashik was a founding member and organizer with the Climate Mobilization. Welcome, Ashik. Thanks so much for having me. And our second guest is Alex Beecham. Alex is the Northeast Region Director at Food and Water Watch. Based in the Brooklyn, New York office, Alex oversees all organizing efforts in New York and the Northeast. Alex has worked on issues related to fracking, factory farms, genetic engineering, and water privatization at Food and Water Watch since 2009. His background is in legislative campaigning and community and electoral organizing. Before joining Food and Water Watch, Alex worked for Grassroots Campaigns, Inc., where he worked on several campaigns, including organizing support for renewable energy in Colorado, fundraising, and running get-out-the-vote operations. Welcome, Alex. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. My first question for both of you is just to give our listeners a sense of what your day-to-day work looks like and what campaigns you're currently working on. So at National Priorities Project, we focus on breaking down aspects of the federal budget and trying to make it legible for people who want to use that politically. So there are a lot of grassroots groups that we partner with um, at the Institute for Policy Studies, which MPP is part of. And from day to day, um, uh, it it varies a lot. So basically, throughout the year, there are a few times in the year that we have annual projects that we we work on. So there are annual analyses that we do around tax day, for example, where we break down the federal budget according to how much um, uh, the average taxpayer pays to different categories of federal spending, like the military, healthcare, education, et cetera. And um, so there are a few times of, of the year that we do these big analyses that break down uh, these uh, massive data dumps from, uh, from the, the federal budget and just uh, spend a, like a week or two um, doing different analyses around that. And then the rest of the time, we're sort of um, uh, doing messaging around that. So once we have the data analyses, then we write op-eds. We might do fact sheets for other groups to use. Um, the, uh, so basically, we're just trying to um, spend the rest of the time that we're not you know, in Excel and uh, data analysis programs, like breaking this stuff down, um, just doing messaging, basically. Thanks. Alex? Yeah, so, you know, Food and Water Watch, we're a national environmental group, and we've, um, the name would imply, we're working a lot on trying to ensure a safe, reliable 
uh, food and water systems that are available to everyone. So, you know, that's kind of the mission. I, I think for us, it's shifted over the years, and we're now increasingly focused on moving the country off fossil fuels and seeing kind of climate change as the biggest threat to those two things, to our, our food and water systems. Um, but we don't just work on climate, right? We do a lot of work on water privatization, a lot of work on uh, ending some of the worst abuses of the industrial food system. So there's a big campaign now to, to ban factory farms, kind of concentrated on a couple states in Iowa. Um, but to me, the bulk of the work, uh, for me anyway, in, in New York is, is fighting uh, to move off fossil fuels. And, and more specifically, I think to the extent we have a niche within that climate movement space, it's, a, it's around stopping some of the bad stuff, right? So there's a lot of people working on renewable energy and we are as well, but that if we have a niche, it's that kind of supply side stopping you know, extraction. So we, for years, fought for ban on fracking in New York. We successfully won now almost five years ago. Um, but not only extraction, all the other stuff too, right? The power plants, the pipelines, sort of all that fossil fuel side, we're trying to shut all of that down. Um, and have been New York at least won a, a whole bunch of those fights. We've also lost several, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's the bulk of it. And we're pretty focused on organizing. I'd say, you know, more than half the staff is, is organizing in some capacity and, and really see our space as, as trying to build the grassroots movement we need to kind of overcome the enormous financial resources of the other side. Um, so yeah, that's a bit about us. Also, I can get a little bit more specific about what projects we're currently working on. Uh, so um, we recently published a, a report called the Poor People's Moral Budget in co uh, coordination with the Poor People's Campaign, uh, which lays out basically like what it would cost to the federal government and what benefits would come back to uh, society for to basically eradicate poverty. So this is updating the Poor People's Campaign of 1968 that Martin Luther King um, Jr., started as basically his last major effort before being killed um, to basically segue from uh, demanding civil rights in the 60s um, to economic rights for all people. So that was a recent report we put out. Uh, there are a few things we have in the works now. Uh, we're in very early stages of planning um, a project to try to figure out how um, aspects of the military industrial complex could, could be converted to greener purposes, mostly focusing on the workforce to try to figure out what a, what a just transition for workers might look like from the military industrial sectors of our economy, as well as fossil fuel sectors, which are already being discussed in great, great detail around Green New Deal. And in general, we also have started to work with the Congressional Progressive Caucus Center, which is a sort of consortium of a bunch of different organizations, um, like progressive think tanks and other policy organizations that are advising members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus on, on policy. So um, every so often, uh, some of them might come to us for advice about how to message around different thing, uh, bills they're working on or, or messaging strategies around particular issues. So NPP and I IPS are like an officially a nonpartisan organization, but we do uh, work with uh, the CPC Center for our policy. Yeah, and talking about the campaign to move off fossil fuels and the conversion, as you were talking about, to renewable economy, we can't ignore the fact that the mil U.S. military is the largest institutional consumer of oil in the world and the largest global landholder. The U.S. military is one of the biggest polluters on Earth. And so my question, and let's start with Alex, is why aren't environmental organizations addressing the largest polluter on Earth, the U.S. military, or are you? 
<laughs> well, it's a great question. I, I think if we are, it's certainly not working very well. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I think it's hard, right? I, I think that um, it can feel like a separate issue to a lot of environmental organizations and the solution isn't terribly clear, right? So you could imagine uh, a campaign that's just about shrinking the, the military budget and, and that by doing that, you'd, you'd shrink the emissions as well. You also, instead of that, could run a campaign or maybe in addition to a campaign to like green the military. Um, but that's just feels difficult to achieve. Even I, I guess what I mean by that is like, you know, at least on, on reducing emissions for the rest of the economy, you can point to a few champions who would, who would really push this in Congress. And even if we're not winning many of those victories, there are people out there. It, you know, if, if you were gonna run something on shrinking the military, as you guys know better than, than I do, I'm sure, those people largely don't exist as elected officials, right? I mean, we, those military budget votes are not close and they've never been close. So I, I think part of the reason, and I don't, I don't mean to be flippant about it, but I do think part of the reason is it's just really incredibly hard. And so there's a tendency to, I think, focus on the lower hanging fruit. And, and I don't mean any of that as a defense of it, right? I think you're right. It, we should be taking it uh, as environmental groups. We should be addressing it much more head on. I think in part, though, it just feels so enormous that people don't quite know where to start. And I don't feel like we at Food and Water Watch are doing this particularly well. I don't know that any of the larger environmental organizations are particularly. Yeah, I mean, you're getting at the crux of the problem, which is, you know, why is it easier to campaign for environmental issues? And, you know, why is the military this thing that, you know, both parties are, are uh, supporting and even though there is this major cross connection and the fact that climate you know one of the leading causes of climate change is war. particularly in the Trump era and even before that in the Republican Congress under Obama you know a lot of environmental groups focused on the state level because you just couldn't get anything done federally and to the extent you fought at the federal level it was defense right it's trying to predict prevent Congress from doing something terrible that's still where we're all at right and so you can then build power at the state level that you hope when there's a shift, you can ultimately use federally. That's just a lot harder to do on, on war, right? There's no role for New York State in particular, um, for example. So I think that's just one other piece of it. And, and I think at least for us, we have put a ton of resources into fighting those state level fights because it was just really clear, you're not gonna win anything at the environmental level federally for a while. Yeah, just to quickly respond to that, I would say um, at World Beyond War, two of our main campaigns are divestment and closing military bases. And I think part of the reason why we're focusing on those two campaigns as sort of the, the baby steps towards war abolition can actually divest cities, state pension funds, universities, and kind of build the movement from the grassroots, as you're saying. And the same thing with closing bases, you can close one base at a time. So that's the approach that we're taking towards the ultimate goal of ending all war. But I'll let Ashik chime in. Yeah, sure. That, that's a really big, uh, you know, naughty question. And uh, regarding uh, the military, I, I think just... Um, there are a bunch of structural reasons, I think. One is just that the military-industrial complex is so much more embedded throughout American society uh, than maybe it has been in the past. Actually, I don't know too much about the history of, um, you know, how different military contractor companies sort of embedded in different congressional districts. But at this point, basically, um, there are funnels of, of money uh, going into pretty much every congressional district in the country through... Um, you know, different things like uh, factories having jobs in particular districts that do provide good, uh, pretty well-paying jobs to people who live there. 
um, and all these other incentives that make it very difficult for representatives in Congress to challenge uh, the military industrial complex in a really direct way. So it's one thing for, you know, particular progressive or libertarian members of Congress to say, you know, we're against war, or we're going to not support some particular intervention of our military in different parts of the world. But it's another thing to just directly say, um, we're, we're going to take away jobs from these communities. So I'm sure this is something you know very well. Um, but it's something that uh, we're thinking about more and more at NPP as we think about how to, you know, present the possibility of converting the workforce. So I think that's just a big structural issue that stands in the way of any other movement organizations of engaging with it because it's so hard for anti-war organizations already and environmental organizations just really have their hands full, you know, like have had their hands full playing defense in a lot of ways against just the onslaught of anti-environmental things that have been happening for a very long time and, you know, just, just seem to be getting worse in some ways. But I think there is a big opportunity, uh, now, uh, like more and more people that we've been talking to, including uh, uh, organizers with, with climate organizations and environmental organizations, to uh, draw out the intersections of all these issues, uh, just because like the urgency of everything is so great right now. Like the climate crisis obviously is extremely urgent at this point, and we're you know we, we probably passed certain tipping points already, but. Um, you know, it, it could always get worse. And uh, I think there's just much more awareness across the board in society. Um, just in the past few months, I think, since the IPCC report came out last fall and um, uh, the Green New Deal has started to seem like a viable thing uh, since it's getting so much grassroots momentum, I think more and more people are willing to draw links to the military budget, for example, um, as something that Uh, we can redistribute resources from to help pay for something like a Green New Deal, but also um, just acknowledging, uh, as you said, the massive carbon footprint of the military itself. Uh, It feels like more people are willing to start talking openly about it and making those links, but there are still just huge structural things in the way. So a lot will just depend on how well um, grassroots networks and organizations can, can really build power together. Alex, when you mentioned the phrase greening the military, that certainly um, struck me, you know, as, as in, in one sense, it seems like an oxymoron, but actually it is an issue that I've seen come up. Is there actually any substance at all to that beyond the fact that it's an oxymoron to green a, a, a practice that involves blowing up things and, you know, killing people? Um, is, is that a real thing? And is that something that has any momentum in the environmental movement? I don't know that it has a ton of momentum. I think the reason I brought it up, it's a really difficult issue to even think about organizing sure it, right? For yeah. pretty obvious reasons, because I think our members would be like, well, we don't want to green the military. <laughs> I'm yeah. glad to hear that, actually. <laughs> um, yeah. But I brought it up because it, you know, it's sort of been in the news. I doubt she would frame it this way, and I'm sure she didn't. But you know, Elizabeth Warren sort of had a plan to reduce emissions from, from the military that, that at least among people I know and, and the stuff I read online, I think the reception among kind of the movement, uh, the, the climate movement, not the, not the anti-war movement, it was deeply skeptical. Um, it's not like that's some scientific study, right? But just among the, the activists I know, it, it didn't resonate terribly well at all. Now, maybe in some wider swath of of people who broadly care about the environment but aren't necessarily like activists in the movement, maybe it plays better. I don't know, but it, but at least among the the sort of hardcore of the environmental movement, I don't think that 
that gets you anything at all. Um, but I, I think that's why it was on my mind because of that plan. But, um, but no, to me, it, it, I think your, your first reaction was right. I think it is an oxymoron. <laughs> I certainly don't want to do it. So I don't know. Yeah. Just following up on what you were saying, Ashik, um, can you provide maybe some specific examples of the kinds of asks that you're making when you're reaching out to environmental organizations, as you say, if these organizations already have such a full plate and, have, you know, so much of their working on with issues of climate change, what are some kind of realistic goals or campaigns or ways that they could incorporate uh, militarism issues into their work? Yeah, so one, one recent thing that happened was uh, there was a coalition of organizations led by Public Citizen um, uh, that was basically a bunch of progressive organizations and a few climate groups, including Friends of the Earth and 350, and I'm forgetting one or two, but basically it was a petition that called for cutting $200 billion from the federal military budget and redirecting it to anything else, but especially for, uh, for climate purposes. Um, so that was spread by Daily Coast and a few other, uh, like Move On, uh, a bunch of progressive organizations that have pretty big platforms and networks. Um, so that was basically just meant to popularize the idea of cutting military spending in order to help pay for um, decarbonizing the economy and other urgent uh, progressive priorities. So I think that's one um, example of how anti-militarism can tie into the efforts of environmental groups, uh, just talking about how to pay for it, because that's uh, just one of the main things that keeps coming up from conservatives and even, you know, like many liberals have absorbed uh, that scarcity mindset of like, yeah, there are lots of nice things we want to pay for, but how are we going to pay for them when, um, you know, there have been decades of, of neoliberalism uh, in th th that have really pervaded the way that policy is made uh, in, in terms of um, thinking about the purpose of policy to sort of make markets work more efficiently and, and markets can solve pretty much any social problem, uh, which really has not been working out for environmental things. Um, so I think uh, just helping point to this massive bloated Pentagon budget as something that we can redirect resources from can help make it legible to people. Like obviously there are other ways like more progressive taxation and um, you know, other ways that federal government can pay for things. But uh, we really want to just keep emphasizing that the military budget is something that takes up more than half of the discretionary budget that's allocated by Congress every year. So that is something that can change. And we think has to, if we're going to really, solve the climate crisis. So, so when we have been talking to different groups, uh, that's sort of one way we frame it. Like we don't want to burden you and the work you're already doing, which is very important. Um, but here's how we think it can complement what you're doing and can help you build out um, the justification for, for what you're talking about. Um, and I think there are a bunch of different angles that people are starting to take to heart in, in the organizations that we've been talking to. One is the, how do you pay for it angle? Another is just that uh, the military is just this massive source of emissions. And also the military's purpose really has been uh, in the United States to help secure fossil fuel resources and continue extraction um, from uh, different parts of the world in, in ways that uh, just accelerate and intensify conflicts. Like in order to secure the fossil fuel resources in Iran or Venezuela or something, 
that causes more military conflict. And you can just see that very clear pattern for, for decades in U.S. foreign policy to this day. Try to help draw out those links. And, uh, you know, some people want to be cautious, especially when we're talking about foreign policy, things like Iran or Venezuela, for example, which can get pretty contentious. But um, we think there's a pretty clear through line. And if you make those connections for people, it, it's pretty intuitive. And Alex, what about you? Um, if World Beyond War reached out to Food and Water Watch about collaborating, what do you think is kind of a realistic first ask or way that you could slowly incorporate some of the militarism language into your campaigns? I totally agree about the military budget piece. That's where my mind went kind of naturally. I think that's one very obvious place. Some of this is not about having like the perfect ask. It's more about just building relationships. And, and I don't know, at least from my perspective, you know, I don't think there are great linkages between the two. And so I don't know that it's environmental groups saying no a lot or the other way, peace groups saying no a lot to environmental groups. I think it's largely that like the asks don't, don't happen. Um, I think it's just because people don't know each other, right? There's not like as, there's not as much cross movement stuff that, in these two as there are in, in some others. So I don't know exactly how you get around that. It's, it's like any other networking, you just sort of have to have to hash through it, I guess. Um, but I was, I was thinking a lot about this before joining this podcast that, you know, it, it, at least locally, I think it, it happens to some extent. So for example, in, in New York, I think a lot of the, um, I mean, this is much more peace groups coming out for what you stereotypically think of as an environmental issue, but there are a lot of peace activists really doing a ton of work on the fracking campaign in New York, um, led in part by Peace Action, but even by more local, really volunteer-led, like Brooklyn for Peace, who's an incredibly strong group that's been around forever, um, just did a huge amount of work on the fracking ban. And they did it because like the issue just became a, a giant thing, right? And, and so they're, at least locally, I think people know each other, but at, at that kind of bigger national level where you're talking about coordinating something congressional or coordinate something bigger. I just think people kind of don't know each other or don't, even if they know each other, don't necessarily think like, oh, I need to call this person, you know? So uh, that's to me the, the bigger barrier, really. I would definitely second that. Just a lot of the people we've been talking to in, in certain groups recently, um, it, it's really just a matter of not having made those connections before. Like once those connections had been made through various channels, um, and, and I guess some trust had been built among organizers of different organizations. Um, that, that was the basis for you know, putting out something like that petition with Public Citizen, for example, and some of the projects we're starting to work on now. Uh, it just takes a lot of time to build, uh, build relationships. And, and that's also what happened with the Poor People's Campaign with IPS. Long discussions over you know, many months um, led to IPS uh, working on this report and a few other groups joined through just very long deliberative processes. So it can take time, but um, I think any successful collaboration just comes from building relationships first, which can be frustrating sometimes, especially when we're talking about something as urgent as climate, as, as a climate crisis. But I think uh, at this point, there's just no way around uh, trying to do that cross-movement relationship building as the basis for you know, more, more like stronger intersections and, and collaborations. Both of you, Ashik and Alex, obviously work with environmental activists on a daily basis. Greta and I both work with anti-war activists on a daily basis. So I have a very good sense of what anti-war activists think about environmental issues, which is that it's extremely urgent and that there's a lot of linkage. Would you say the 
not that there's such a thing as a typical environmental activist, but most of the people that, that each of you work with, what is the level to which um, these people are concerned or aware of on a daily basis the issues of ending war, the, the, the urgency of ending war, the day-to-day -day news cycle of things that happen in Iran or Venezuela, it's, you know, to pick the, the two oil-rich nations that um, you correctly pointed out, Ashik. Is there a lot of awareness on your sides? I, I think it varies uh, depending on the group and network you're talking about. So at IPS, uh, there's one um, network that our climate justice director has pretty strong relationships with called the Climate Justice Alliance. Uh, it's a, a, a nexus of a bunch of different um, uh, social and racial justice organizations, uh, especially from uh, a bunch of frontline communities. Uh, they have a strong... Um, presence of black and indigenous people and Latinx organizers. And I think the analysis that they have is much more um, embedded with like a decolonial analysis, just, you know, an understanding of the ways in which the United States in many ways is structured on white supremacy and colonialism. So I think uh, their take on the climate crisis is that it's an outcome of a much longer um, you know, structural series of oppressions. So I think their understanding of war is is definitely baked into that. Like they definitely have an anti-militarist uh, demilitarizing analysis. It's not really front and center in the work they do, but when um, my coworker Basaf has brought it up at their meetings, like everybody's just on board, it's just kind of a matter of capacity, which goes back to your question about why more environmental organizations aren't addressing it. Like even organizations and networks that, you know, are, are very much oriented toward being anti-war and have a strong um, anti-militarist analysis, might not be able to focus their resources on it at the moment just because they're focused on so many day-to-day -day fights. Um, but I think uh, they've been, like the people we've talked to from, from that network have been very excited to hear that we're working on, you know, drawing out those intersections in the work we're doing. And I think if, uh, people in the, in the movements started to do more to draw this out. I think there are plenty of, of other organizers who would, uh, you know, who, who would find it a no brainer. Um, I, I know CJA uh, recently has uh, messaged a lot around Puerto Rico, for example, um, which I guess isn't directly a military conflict, but uh, there are a lot of issues there about, um, you, you know, basically being oppressed by the US government in, in financial ways um, and economically, and the aftermath of Hurricane Maria uh, was a matter of, of economic neglect, but also there's been a bit of a militarized response to protest in Puerto Rico the uh, past two weeks, right? Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of other examples. So I'm not sure how much they were messaging around not intervening in Venezuela, for example. Um, but I think that analysis is there. And I, I guess if you're talking about other organizations, like I've been talking to people in the Sunrise Movement um, in, the, in the past few months, uh, who are the, the youth organization that's really been driving a lot of the uh, direct actions for a Green New Deal in Congress. Um, and uh, I think pretty much any one of them that I've talked to is, is like, yeah, of course we're anti-war. Like we're millennials, we're younger, like our entire life, America has been at war in Iraq or Afghanistan. Oh, sure, we're against that. 
just, again, a matter of like focus, I think. Um, but I, more and more of, the, of them, I think I've started to use the, the budget framing and AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, who's been one of the main congressional champions has started to use that talking point as well about redirecting military funds to climate purposes. So I think it's sort of percolating up. And Alex, as you said, like a lot of the grassroots groups who've been doing this work, like peace groups, have, have very naturally made these connections for a long time. Like even before we started talking at NPP about cutting the military budget in half in the poor people's moral budget, uh, I, I saw plenty of signs and like flyers from local peace groups about uh, demanding uh, a cut of the military budget in half to help play, pay for your climate. Uh, mitigation and decarbonizing the economy. So I think there are plenty of people who are already naturally making these connections. It's just not happening so much structurally uh, in organizations yet, but I think it's starting to happen. Great. And what would you say, Alex? I mean, I, I agree with all that from like an organizational perspective. I don't have a ton to add on that. I guess if you're thinking about just a an, an given activist, and obviously there there is no given activist, right? They're all individual people, but I, it's funny because I think for environmentalists or people in the climate movement, there's a, an awareness of this and, and people I think are reflexively anti-war and, and think that but aren't particularly active on it. And to me, one of the issues, it's kind of the same problem with climate change, actually, which is that it just feels so enormous and hard and difficult that you get kind of mired in it, right? Which it, yep. like it's the same thing people say about climate change, where like when you you know, like if you're trying to organize on climate change, when you lead with the like the doom and gloom and the existential threat, you know, clearly that ought to motivate all of us, right? That, that if we don't do this, the civilization might collapse. But it's it's almost too big, right? And it's easier to think of the threat to your water or the, you know, it, it's easier to think of something smaller. And I think there is just something pretty innate about that, right? That it's just really kind of difficult. Even if you get it on an intellectual level, it's pretty difficult to be motivated by this sort of like large looming threat that that seems so scary um, that you don't even want to think about it, right? And to me, the militarism is kind of the same way, right? Like to, to think about actually solving that is just so enormous. And you think of all the different places um, on a given day, the, the new, the, the kind of daily onslaught of the news cycle is kind of even the same in both issues, right? Where like every day there's some truly terrifying climate story and every day there's some awful war story somewhere in the world. So I, none of that is particularly enlightening or, <laughs> or motivating, I don't guess, but I do think that's the problem. Like people get it and are aware of it and just kind of, kind of throw up their hands at some level and say, well, good Lord, there's so much of this. I don't know exactly what I can do, but it seems bad. You know, I think that's where most people are at, honestly, where most people in the climate movement are at anyway. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, that's just, uh, uh, a statement we we come across all the time, and I think like again there there are structural reasons for that. Like at the heyday of the anti-war movement, like against Vietnam, and then uh, you know like a decade later the dis nuclear disarmament movement. I think um, a lot of things were different then, but uh, those were both responses to just how uh, pervasive the impacts of those things were throughout society. Like the Vietnam War had a draft. So many people personally knew somebody who had been drafted and, you know, traumatized or horribly injured or killed in that war. Um, so I think there was a much more widespread of, of a sense of discontent with the Vietnam War. And then with the nuclear uh, movement, I think there's just such a 
an imminent sense of possible doom during the Cold War that eventually just, uh, you know, it was psychologically affecting so many people, like children, were just thinking and talking about it in ways that were very disturbing to their parents. Uh, and I, you know, there's a, like a possibility of something like that happening, starting to happen with the climate crisis, like with the nuclear disarmament movement, just because it's becoming so urgent and so many people are becoming aware of how bad it is. But, but yeah, as, as you said, Alex, it's just tough because it's, um, for so many people, it's still like a sort of third or fourth order priority of like things they're anxious about. And, and war is the same thing. Like the war, uh, the war on terror uh, that's just been growing is, is kind of still hidden from view, even though there are all these like horrible stories coming out all the time. Most Americans don't have a direct connection to it the way that people did during Vietnam. So I think that's just a structural challenge of, of how to make it, you know, more salient to people. And that's something that plenty of people who've been at it way longer than me have been thinking about and work, trying to work with. Um, like, you know, it's very well known that in 2003 against the Iraq war protests, uh, against the Iraq war, like that, that was one of the biggest mass protests against war, like ever, like millions of people were marching against it, but then nothing happened. So I think part of that is just, um, I don't know, like an, or it's, it's an organizing challenge. I, like, I think, um, it doesn't affect as many people from day to day in terms of what's, what's on their consciousness, but also, um, I, I think there aren't as many civil society organizations as maybe there were a few decades ago. Like a lot of the uh, grassroots organizations that exist now are in some ways operating in a social context where there just aren't as many like tight knit social networks and like civil society organizations that many people participated in a few decades ago. Like people are much more atomized in some ways. So it makes just organizing difficult, more difficult in general. Um, I, I just want to mention also, I, I do think the opposition, meaning sort of the military industrial Wall Street complex is much more organized and more well-financed and more focused on fighting against good causes, meaning fighting for war, fighting for corporate permission to spoil the environment um, than they were during the Vietnam era. And yeah. that's another challenge. Yeah, and that's something that, that I think it's very easy to, you know, like when you're in movement spaces, it's just very easy to start focusing on like what you feel like you did wrong or other people in the movement did wrong. But it's, <laughs> we can never overstate just how powerful the opposition is, yeah. just like how much it's because of that, that we haven't been as successful as we want to be. So I think, um, you know, obviously there's always more that we could be doing better, but I think... Um, you know, sometimes it, it can feel like a little bit of a circular firing squad. Yep. I, the the yeah. one thing that the environmental movement and anti-war movement have in common is our opposition is very well financed and very profitable. Yeah, I think what we're getting at is that it really comes down to us, the organizers, to break down these issues into small, actionable steps and campaigns. And that's why for me, I, I always come back to divestment, as I really see divestment as something that is doable, on a personal level, on a community level, at a university, municipality, et cetera. And so I see a lot of hope for that campaign. Um, another way of kind of bringing this issue uh, home is through water. And Alex, you mentioned water contamination. Um, and that is something we've been focusing on at World Beyond War as well. And the fact that military bases are sites of contamination, particularly with the PFOA and PFOS water contamination. 
And this is happening at military base sites and the communities surrounding those sites all across the United States and all across the world. The U.S. military has something like 800 bases around the world in 80 countries. Um, and I know that Food and Water Watch is working on water contamination issues, especially PFOS and PFOA. Um, Alex, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that work and if you've had any cross connections with peace organizations because of the military, sort of um, the root cause of many of this contamination being the military. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an excellent point. And you're right, it's happening everywhere. You know, I think what we know about PFOA and PFOS or what we know about how much contamination there is, is only going to grow and grow. And, and the problem is going to get much, much worse. I mean, it's already, the problem is already there. We just don't know it. Right. So the, to, for people that don't know, these are chemicals that are the so-called kind of forever chemicals. Right. Um, so uh, there's a whole class of them and there's a bunch of things that, that contribute to it. So in New York, for example, there's, um, there's a, a PFOA crisis that started in Hoosick Falls that comes from this old plant that was making nonstick pans, right? So PFOA is this um, crucial uh, chemical that you need in the production of those pans. And then, you know, we didn't know this at the time for decades, but it's been going in the water for, for a really, really long time. Uh, and then the Cuomo administration didn't, even when they knew, similar to Flint, the people at Hoosick Falls waited roughly a year after the health department knew before any action was taken at all. And now the state has taken a whole bunch of actions and it won't, won't bore folks with it, um, but they're still fighting for a new water supply. And in the meantime, are dealing either with bottled water or with, um, or with filters. Uh, so that was kind of the, 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 I mentioned that only, but that's a private company example, right? Um, but since that has happened, we've seen the military base issue that, that Greta mentioned uh, in other cities across the state, probably most prominently in Newburgh. Newburgh's on the Hudson River, maybe uh, hour, hour and a half from New York City on the West Bank of the, of the Hudson. Uh, and so there's an there's a, um, air base there, right? And so the, the chemical, very cynical chemical PFOS that's in this firefighting foam used at a bunch of military bases, um, used also uh, in other airports. But particularly military bases. And, and one, I think, striking difference between these two is that in the first example where you have a private company, you know, that's Honeywell, and you, it, it is a fight, but under the Superfund law, we've roughly, I mean, there's still a fight going on about it, but you can get the private company to pay, right? If you pollute, you have to pay. Um, and if the company can't pay, you take out of the Superfund that, that's funded by, by all these companies that pollute, right? Um, it's much harder when you're dealing with the Department of Defense, right? So we're, we're doing the same thing in Newburgh and what people are discovering is, you know, as bad as these giant corporations are and as bad as we are at regulating them, you can actually mostly get them to pay up. Getting the Department of Defense to pay has been much, much more difficult, not even pay. Every step of the process has been delay, delay, uh, delay. And it's just really difficult, right? Because there's not a heck of a lot that the state can do uh, there's not a heck of a lot that anybody can do to, to sort of force them to go faster, right? So everyone's trying and there's a whole campaign. I don't need to be all doom and gloom. I think ultimately um, we'll get there, but it's been incredibly frustrating. And I think along the way, as that's happened, you've had a lot of environmentalists, uh, or not even environmentalists, just a lot of people in Newburgh, uh, because this affected the whole town, right? The, their entire water supply uh, was contaminated. They had to find a new water supply. Luckily, Newburgh is really close to New York City's water supply, so they were able to sort of divert water from, um, from the aqueduct that serves the city. Uh, but so that's a, in, I mentioned that only to say, this isn't just 
stereotypical environmentalist, everyone in the town is hyper concerned about this, right? Because their water was contaminated. And so as that happened, I think you've seen a, a beginning of a radicalization of the community saying, well, you know, here's this giant base in town that's, you know, been there forever and people largely don't think about it and they know people who are on the base. And, and I think it's, it's among some, move them a little bit along this line, right? To say like, well, do we even want this here to begin with? Now, fighting to get rid of it is gonna be a whole giant other struggle, but it's just been interesting, I think, to see the kind of evolution of it. And you're right that over time that, that could, um, motivate a lot of people to get more involved in the anti-war movement and specifically motivate a lot of environmentalists to make connections. But maybe more directly to your question, there's been a little bit, I, I, I don't think there is an incredibly strong um, anti-war movement locally there. And so I don't think there's been a lot of that. I think what you've more seen is people just begin to, to change their minds of, um, about the way they think about um, the military and the military budget. But um, that I think is the challenge of all of this. Water crises are incredibly local, right? So they're, they're, if you're talking about issues that are like broad and deep, meaning like a lot of people care about them and people care about them a lot, water crises are maybe the deepest issue, at least in the environmental space there is, where when your water is contaminated or there's a risk of your water being contaminated, people are extremely likely to take action, extremely motivated to act. The problem with it is that most people don't think about it until there's a real threat to their water, right? It's just a thing you take for granted. You turn on the tap and it's fine. Um, and so that's kind of the struggle here, right? It, where there are water crises, people make these connections. Uh, but where there aren't, I think folks largely don't think about it. So that's kind of the, the challenge of it. But, but certainly, this is a place where at many, probably not all, but at many, particularly Air Force bases, Many Air Force bases around the country are going to have some level of PFOS contamination. Uh, and, and around those sites, for sure, that is a, a huge opportunity um, to organize around and to make these connections between the environmental movement and, and the peace movement. Um, Ashik, I wanted to turn back to what you were talking about in terms of the Poor People's Campaign and your work with creating the moral budget, um, which really links together all of these issues that we've been talking about in terms of specifically for the moral budget, right? Militarism, poverty, racism, and environmental destruction. Um, can you talk about that report and especially sort of the aftermath of the report? Is there any organizing happening linking these issues based on the report? You know, what is the momentum coming out of the Poor People's Campaign? So after the launch of the Poor People's Moral Budget, uh, uh, that there was, or during the launch of the Poor People's Moral Budget, there was a Poor People's Congress, uh, where the Poor People's Campaign brought together a lot of activists and organizers from around the country who had been working with their campaign for the past year or two. Uh, so over a thousand people came together in D.C. to uh, review a lot of the work that they had been doing and to sort of um, go through a lot of different parts of the report and think and talk about how to incorporate the messaging in it in the work going forward. And that Congress also included a presidential candidates forum, uh, which was attended by nine of the 20 uh, candidates in the Democratic primary. So the, that, that town hall included questions that were pr uh, often pretty pointed about things like reducing the military budget. And we got seven out of nine of those candidates, at least on record, saying that they would be willing to cut the military budget. And one of the people who did not commit to that on the record was not asked about it, Bernie Sanders, who's on the record elsewhere as talking about wanting to do that. So I think that's uh, one step forward in 
leading to the presidential primary that at least eight Democratic candidates have talked for the first time in a long time about actually reducing the military budget. Uh, but in terms of what the organizers are doing, um, there's, there are plenty of local legislative campaigns and other um, uh, grassroots campaigns relating to different aspects of the moral budget. But the main thing that uh, we have been helping with in that report in terms of strategy is, is storytelling. So the report is embedded with uh, quotes from a lot of different organizers, uh, poor people who are talking about how all these issues intersect in their own lives um, and why they're organizing for um, you know, voting rights, for example, in a way that uh, also includes uh, you know, a pretty solid analysis of, of how militarism and environmental destruction are, are involved in that. So there were just all these quotes and stories uh, throughout the report and um, in a lot of the um, events that happened since the budget launch where people are talking about, you know, how their communities have been ravaged by opi opioids, for example, because pharmaceutical companies have been perpetuating them in ways that take advantage of, of all the flaws in our health and our, our healthcare system. And these uh, profiteers are the same ones that are profiting from uh, the defunding of schools and uh, mass incarceration. Like a lot of these same insurance companies are, you know, paid to provide uh, pretty shoddy healthcare to inmates, for example. Uh, so all these issues sort of intersect um, in in the experience of a lot of uh, what what the organizers are talking about, or just things like um, parts of the country that are very poor because they've just been defunded for generations. Um, like um, one organizer in California talked about how initially it was native indigenous land and then it became farming land. And then industries like General Motors and others, like including some uh, military contractors were the main job creators there, which are destructive industries, but then also uh, you know, trade policy impacted the economic conditions there, like when NAFTA was signed, factories left and jobs declined. And, um, you know, that's also had environmental consequences. So um, there are just all these stories about how all these things intersect. And like voting rights is, is a really core motivator of, of this campaign. Um, and just like person after person who gave testimonies at a congressional hearing and, and throughout the Congress um, that the Poor People's Campaign had just talked about how uh, they know that the reason their voting rights are being suppressed is because uh, various profiteers from different industries are trying to keep them from voting in the changes that that are no-brainers for, for normal people and especially poor and low-income people. So I think they're uh, just like we're putting out this data and uh, like making policy suggestions um, in keeping with the Poor People's Campaign's demands, but once we put out this information, a lot of people are very intuitively making connections uh, of all these issues with their own experiences. So I think that's something that we are helping people do. Yeah, the Poor People's Campaign has been very inspiring for me and I think for many other activists just to see these cross connections being made so clearly. I know that World Beyond War and Food and Water Watch are both national partners of the Poor People's Campaign. We only have a couple minutes left. So Mark, do you have any last questions? Yeah, I do. In light of the fact that we all want more people to become conscious citizens and activists, I'd like to hear from both of you, what, what drew you to the world you're in today? How come you are an activist? How come you are the specific kind of activist you are? That's a really great question. Um, so I took a little bit of a winding path to get to where I am now. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I studied neuroscience uh, with thinking that I would 
you know, maybe go into medicine or like become a psychologist or something or do research. And my first job out of college was related to that. I was doing research in a veterans hospital studying uh, uh, PTSD and veterans of combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that was, you know, a great job for right out of college, great research experience. Um, but over the course of that, uh, I was there for almost three years. And I think I became productively disillusioned <laughs> with the way um, uh, that research was happening. It, it was funded uh, mostly by the DOD. And it just became pretty clear to me that, um, you know, even though pretty much everybody who I worked with in that lab was very focused on treatment and care for the veterans we were working with, and eventually, you know, figuring out how to deal constructively with PTSD, which is very hard to treat compared to other psychological conditions like depression and anxiety. Um, it just kind of became clear that the funding structure was ultimately to sort of figure out like how to manage the costs of PTSD in terms of like finding some very quick fix treatment maybe for people who are traumatized in war or, you know, even more darkly, perhaps like finding ways to screen out people who are susceptible to PTSD. So you can just have more effective soldiers who are not traumatized by their awful experiences of killing people. So I think I sort of realized that there were more systemic issues if I actually wanted to help. And that led to, um, you know, drawing out journalism and like uh, eventually um, one of my friends who had been a reporter uh, covering the Occupy Wall Street movement became very concerned about the climate crisis. And um, we talked about it enough that I also got freaked out enough that I decided to just help uh, launched the climate mobilization, um, which was focused on advancing uh, the very rapid timeframe of, of decarbonization that scientists and many organizers have been talking about for a long time, which is becoming increasingly relevant as the actual climate impacts are accelerating much faster than many scientists had anticipated. And a lot of the organizing around the Green Deal has been take, has taken off from that. So I think um, while doing that work, I was doing research and communications with them uh, it became clear that like not many people had had done the work of figuring out how such a large-scale economic mobilization could work. Uh, the last example of that in American history is really the World War II mobilization um, in terms of uh, a time when just a huge amount of federal resources were putting into tackling something considered, you know, an existential threat and redirecting huge portions of the economy, including major industries, to the war effort, like something like that. Uh, on that scale, like, would be necessary against the climate crisis if our society and government decided to take it seriously. So that led to getting more interested in uh, just how federal policy works and how the budget works. And that led me to the National Priorities Project, which has been doing that work. And Alex? Yeah, so I've been, I've been at Food Water Watch for a long time. I've been here 10 years and I've been organizing basically my entire career. Um, so I won't bore people with the kind of winding path, but I think that for me, what originally sparked it, I mean, this sounds silly, but I grew up in West Texas in a uh, town called Lubbock in the Panhandle. And so in high school, we, uh, we had no sex ed. That's not really true. We had sex ed in <laughs> Lubbock. It was just that the entirety of it was that if you don't have sex, you will not get pregnant. And shockingly, that resulted in a whole bunch of terrible things, right? The, the town had like the highest STD rates really high teen pregnancy rates, um, all of that stuff, right? And so me and a bunch of my friends as high schoolers were, you know, learned this <laughs> somehow, not from the school, obviously, and um, thought it was pretty terrible. And so we kind of did all, 
we, we did all this research and, and we, I think naively thought like, oh, this is a problem, but like, we'll just show the school board how bad a problem this is and surely they will listen to us, right? And so we, we took all this time and prepared this, what we thought great presentation and brought it to the school board and to this one specific woman who I'm sort of forgetting the Byzantine uh, structure there, but it seemed like she was the, the person to talk to, right? And she just sat there nicely and completely blew us off. And um, for me, it was really this moment where it clicked, where it was like, oh, well, we're right. It's extremely clear that we're right. And it just sort of doesn't matter, right? <laughs> that, that we're not going to win that way. And so then we sort of, you know, I mean, none of us knew what we were doing, but we sort of began organizing without probably even calling it that and forming a group of students and, and pushing and pushing and pushing. This story doesn't end well because they, they still don't have sex ed in Lubbock and <laughs> we never won it. There's a, amazingly a documentary about it, uh, about a woman doing the same thing a couple of years after I left. But um, for me, it was just this radicalizing moment. And, and even though we didn't win, I sort of saw the power in it that when you brought a lot of people together, the same school board member who completely blew, up off, blew us off, all of a sudden seems a little more scared when you've like flooded her office with calls and have a, you have another meeting, but with way more people and you have a rally of students. And, and that to me was, was powerful and something sort of clicked in my mind that this is sort of what I want to do. And then it, you know, led to a bunch of electoral organizing in college and then later all the, all the climate stuff. But that was the key moment to me was realizing like, we're not going to win by being right. And it mm. just opened up a whole thing. Well, great. Thanks. I think it's time to wrap it up, but thank you so much, Alex and Ashik for sharing your insights and your story today. I feel like I'm leaving with some new ideas to work on. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really great to be here with you. much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.